All of life is clay in the hands of the potter. He holds the good and the bad, the beautiful and the ugly, the upright and the disgraceful. The remarkable thing about the Father is that he is able to take all of the pieces of life and work them into a unique masterpiece. When all I am encounters the great I am, the result is transformation, blessings, and life. And I'd invite you, will you just hold your hands, uh, hands open, palms to the sky, just symboling, uh, Lord, we're, we're open to you. So, Father, we are, we're open. We, we invite you through your word to be like a skilled surgeon, to, to poke around at our heart and our soul, to reveal if there's any way that's, that's offensive, any way that's off base from the truth in us, Lord, and, and then ultimately to lead us in the way everlasting. Help us this morning, Jesus, to taste and to see that you are good. We're open. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. A number of years ago when I was a college pastor in, in San Diego, um, we had a tradition after every single one of our Sunday night services, uh, me and a few hundred college students would head over and flood in and out burger to the glory of God. Um, a few amens there. I like that. Yeah, and so um, we would we would pack the place out, and and typically that uh, celebration would last well into the morning. And um, one night I was getting ready to leave at about midnight after hanging out with a group of students, and um, when I pulled into the space, there was nobody parked in the space that was directly behind me. And uh, I decided that I was just going to pull straight back um, and then pull out because if you've ever been in a Southern California parking lot, you need to sort of grease up in order to get out of par most parking spaces. I mean, they're, they're pretty tight. And so I um, went in reverse with a number of my college students standing there still talking, and I hit a black, brand new Mercedes Benz as hard as I possibly could in a parking lot, I think. Now... Um, it still had the temporary license plate tags on it. And if that isn't the walk of shame, I'm not exactly sure what is. So I have a bunch of my students there going, um, hey, Paulson, like you might want to look in your rearview mirror before you just floor it in reverse. And so I get out of the car. And there, I kid you not, there's not even the slightest scratch on this Mercedes-Benz. But my Honda Pilot, or my Honda um, Element at the time, did not fare quite as well. There was a nice little chunk taken out of my bumper, and so I went home and got up the next morning and sort of tried to pop out the bumper. Anybody played that game before, right, where it's cracked and it looks terrible, but you're trying to do a little bit of surgery on it, and it didn't work out that well, but I decided that I was going to just keep driving the car. Anybody drive one of those kind of cars, right? I was just going to keep driving the car. I wasn't going to get it fixed. I wasn't going to spend the money. I wasn't going to spend the time. I wasn't going to make the investment. It worked okay, and I was just going to ride it broken. I was thinking about the life of Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the Hebrew faith that we've been studying his life over the last eight weeks. And I, I think he's living in the same way. He's living in a way where 
life is just a little bit off. Life is just a little bit broken. Life is just a little bit fractured. And Jacob, for the last 20 years, has lived with his crazy uncle Laban. Remember, he stole a blessing from his brother. He was running in fear because his brother said that he wanted to kill him. Evidently, when you steal somebody's blessing, it doesn't go over all that well. That's not a great way to make friends. That's for free this morning. And so Jacob runs away from the problem. And because of the way that he's programmed, Jacob is able to overcome a lot of things in his life. Jacob's sort of this shady character, and he's able to manipulate situations, and he's able to to get what he wants most of the time. But regardless of how far he runs, and regardless of how much he accumulates, how, how much he has to his name, how many possessions, how many wives, how many kids, how much stuff, regardless of what Jacob has to his name, And how far he runs and how much he does and accomplishes. Esau is always in his rearview mirror. Esau is always this this fracture in his life. Esau is always sort of looming in the shadows looking to see, are you going to to address me? Are you going to fix this problem? Are you going to address this fear and this issue that's hidden beneath the successes that you've had and the things you've accumulated and the identity that you've formed? Are you going to address me, Esau? Looms and cries from the shadow of Jacob's life. And for 21 years, he's able to avoid the issue. For 21 years, he's able to run from the problem. But you better believe that for 21 years, he never forgets. For 21 years, although it's out of sight, it's never out of mind. Because Esau, in Jacob's mind, is that thing, that person, that event, that decision, that failure that shapes and forms his identity on a very core level of his soul. And regardless of how far he goes, he can never outrun Esau. And regardless of how much he accumulates, he can never get to the point where this person doesn't matter anymore in his life. I think a lot of us are like Jacob. I think a lot of us are driving around with that fracture, that, that crack, that on a, on a soul level, maybe there's some, some words that have been spoken to us, some things that we heard from a very early age that just shaped our identity. And you and I know, regardless of how much we accumulate to our name, we will never get enough to squelch that name down far enough where it doesn't determine the decisions that we make and the life that we live. There's a lot of us, we are, ru- we are running from the things that we are afraid of on a very core identity level. There have been things that have shaped us, events that have happened to us, or decisions that we've made that have formed us, and we're trying our best to keep those voices and those names in the shadows as much as we can. But I'm here to tell you, Jacob was not able to outrun those things in his life. And it, will you look up at me for just a second? You, you won't be either. And the running that we often do in the brokenness that we have, the identity that we're trying to fill up in the accumulation of the things that we have, the failures that we're trying to out-achieve, and the insecurity that we're trying to build hedges around in our life, we will eventually have to stare those things in the face. 
And we'll eventually have to address the fears that so often haunt us on a very deep core level of our souls. And for Jacob, Esau represents his insecurities. Esau represents the life that he wished he'd had. The blessing that he wished was actually for him. Esau represents the thing that Jacob has been hiding from for decades. And he can't outrun it anymore. So I wonder if you'll invite me in a little bit. And I know that many of you don't know me all that well. But I I would love an invitation into your heart, into your soul, into your mind to just poke around a little bit today. To allow the word of God to to examine us and to ask some questions. And the only, the main question I want to ask you this morning is, is is there something you're running from? Is there something in the very core of your soul that you feel like, man, this has happened to me or I made this choice and therefore I'm unlovable, I'm unknowable, and I don't want anybody to get close enough to me to actually hurt me? Is there something that you're running from? Because there was something that Esau or Jacob was running from. His name was Esau. And today we're going to look at after 20 plus years, Jacob finally encountering the thing that always lurked in the shadows. The thing that remained regardless of how big Jacob got and how many accomplishments he made. Genesis chapter 32, if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn there with me. You and I have an Esau in our life. Will you turn to the person next to you and say, you've got an Esau? You've got an Esau. We all do. We all have an Esau. It's typically not something we're going to lead with in a small group, okay? Um, Our Esau, our thing that we wrestle with is typically not something that we're going to reveal to everybody in our life, but it's completely unhealthy to reveal it to no one. Genesis chapter 32, starting in verse 1. And Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And he's he's saying, all right, God, you're with me in this. Remember, God was the one that said to Jacob, leave Laban and go home. Go to the country that I'm, I'm, I'm promising you. It's your land, Jacob. This is God's initiative. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. Verse 5. Verse 5. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. What an interesting phrase. What an interesting picture. See, Jacob is getting ready to meet his nemesis, as it were, Esau. What does he say? Here's my goal. Here's my desire. Here's my wish. Um, After 20 plus years, after I stabbed you in the back, I can imagine you're going to be a little bit upset, but my goal in this interaction, seeing you for the first time in over two decades, is that I might what? Find favor. That you might look upon me, not in a way where you'd want to take me out back and kill me like you said you wanted to do when I ran away, but that maybe time has healed this wound. And isn't it true that 
time does heal some wounds. Some wounds, time has a way of expanding. Some wounds, time has a way of healing. Jacob doesn't know which direction this is going to go at this point. So what does he do? He sends his men. He sends his men with a message. I've got stuff. I've got, I've got flocks. I've got herds. I've got people. I've got wives. I've got kids. I've got stuff. These decades have been pretty good to me. That's the message. That's the message. Verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, uh, we came to your brother Esau and he was coming to meet us and there are 400 men with him. Now, if this is a movie, pause, slow motion, Jacob's jaw drops, his eyes big, he knows he's in trouble. The music changes. He knows he's in trouble. Verse 7, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. See, we can relate to Jacob, can't we? That thing that we have in our life, our Esau, that pain that we're running from, that decision we made that haunts us, that thing that was done to us that we can't get over. I love the reality that the scripture is grounded in. Of course, Jacob's greatly distressed and afraid. The last time he saw this guy, he said he wanted to kill him. And now he's got 400 men coming with him, presumably not for a parade to welcome him home. So yeah, he was afraid. And so here's what Jacob does. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. He is making a provision for getting his face kicked in. That's what he's doing. He's assuming this is not going to go well for me. He's doing what we do. He's making a contingency plan to overcome the fear that so often haunts us and our souls. That's what he's doing. He's looking at the external circumstances and going, I've got a battle in front of me that I know I'm going to lose. And then in verses 9 through 12, he prays. We're going to come back to that. He prays and he asks God, will you deliver me? Will you deliver me? Verse 13. So he stayed there that night. He's, he's encamped in two different camps with, with all of his stuff, all of his um, family and the things he's accumulated, the, the herds, the goats, the flocks, the wives, the children. He's got it all right near him. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. Verse 17, skip down there with me. He's going to give his brother a present. He instructed the people who were taking it to him. When my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They're a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed in droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. Stop there. Because let, let, let's get the picture in our mind. Esau is encamped. 
He's got two different camps, but surrounding Esau, at the center of the camp is Esau. And around him, he has his wives, his children, his flocks, his herds. He's got all of his stuff surrounding him. And here's what Esau does. This is the picture of how he deals with the pain that is in the shadows of his life for 20 plus years. I'm going to do this. This is what Jacob thinks. I'm going to lob ahead of me gifts. I'm going to throw out there the best parts of me. All my successes and all my strengths. And what I'm going to do, what Jacob's going to do, is I am going to be what? Behind. I'm going to lob my gifts ahead. They're going to go and my gifts are going to do my bidding for me. But me, the real me, the me that's in pain, the me that regrets that decision, the me that's afraid, I'm staying back because I'm not sure how I'll be received. I'm staying behind. That's Jacob's thought. And don't you wish the Bible were applicable? I love the, the uncomfortable laugh. <laughs> yeah. Because don't we, don't we do the same thing, right? We'll let people see a certain part of us. And typically, it's the best part, right? Typically, it's the good part. Typically, it's the part that we would like them to see. We'll let them see a certain piece of us, but the real us lags behind. The real us stands in the shadows. The real us still refuses to be known because the pain is so deep that we think we'll be rejected if they know the real us. So what does Jacob do? He does what we all do. He insulates his life. He plays the game. He puts on the mask. He continues to run from the thing he needs to face in order to grow to become the man that God is calling him to be. But before we're too hard on him, let's just acknowledge that we often do the same thing. We, we arrange the things around us to hide the pain that's deep within us. That's what Jacob is doing. He doesn't want to face it. He doesn't know how it's going to go. The scriptures are really, really clear. He is distressed and afraid. And when that happens to you and to I in the same way it happened to Jacob, it stirs up fear in our hearts. And the fear that we carry always leads to the facades that we wear. The masks that you go to are a mechanism to cope with the fears that haunt you. They always are, every single time. My, my kids, they love to dress up and wear masks around our house. Um, um, on a daily basis, we have a costume dance party in our home, to the glory of God. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, we have little Batman. Little Superman, little Spider-Man running around on a daily basis. It's really cute. When you're seven or five or three, um, it's not as cute. When as adults we do similar things. It's not as cute for Jacob. It's not as cute. It doesn't get the job done. 
in the way that allows us to deal with the realities of life in a way that would lead us to be healthy people. See, Jacob's saying, I'm going to wear the mask. You can sort of see a part of me, but you can't see the whole me. He wants to resolve the issue without exposing himself. So he lobs the gifts ahead. He lobs the gifts over. E.E. Cummings, the poet, said this. He said, the great battle we face as human beings is the battle to protect our true selves from the self the world wants us to become. And Jacob is in this battle. He's in this wrestling. Who am I going to be? What is my life going to be defined as? And he steps into the same pattern that his ancient ancestors set up in the garden. See, because Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, the scriptures say in Genesis chapter 25, or Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. But when sin enters into the world, what's the very first thing that they do? They hide. Because they have this conviction, who I really am cannot be found out. Who I really am, if they really see me and if they really know me, there's no way that they'll still love me. If they see the real me, they will run in fear because I'm messed up and I'm broken. And so it's safer to cover myself than it is to reveal my hurt. That's what they do. That's what Jacob does. He just lobs the best things in his life forward. He embraces this false self as a defense, as a protection. Did you know that all throughout the scriptures we're called to not fear? As if it's like so easy we could just put together our to-do list in the morning. All right, uh, do the laundry. I got to go to work. I got to call that person back. Don't fear. Check. Done, wonderful, great. And we, we know it's not that easy. And so the scriptures tie a lack of fear into a knowledge of who we are as children of the Most High God. Look at the way that this plays out in Isaiah chapter 43. He says, but now thus says the Lord, this is Isaiah the prophet speaking on behalf of God, he who created you, he who formed you, O Jacob, O Israel. Say it with me, church. Fear not. Why? Why? For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Don't fear. I know you. Not the mask you, not the gifts you, but the real you. I know you. And hey, 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 will you look up at me for a second? And for some of you, this is, you just, you need to hear this. There's walls around your heart and you're running and you're hoping you can outachieve that pain that you've gone through, that thing that you've been in. But this is a word for you this morning. He sees you and he loves you. He knows you and he loves you. Not the mask you, but the, but the real you. So I started to think through this story. I started to think through my life and our life as a community of faith. And I wanted to ask the question, what are, what are some of the masks that we wear? What are some of the gifts that we lob forward and lag behind in the shadows, hoping that that thing will just simply go away? What are some of those things? Well, here's, here's the first that I see in the passage. It's the, um, it's the projection of power. Okay, so here's the mask, right? 
The projection of power. Here's what the projection of power says. Um, hey, uh, Esau, in the 20 plus years that we've been apart, you, you may not have realized this, but I'm sort of a big deal now. <laughs> I've got herds, and I've got flocks, and I've got wives, and I've got people, and I have, and I have, and I have. Esau, you don't want to mess with me. What, he's got 400 people? Oh, I don't want to mess with him, right? But initially, here's the mask. I have, I have, I have. And we have this projection of power that we wrestle with in order to not allow people to see the broken us, but to see the best pieces of us. And so here's the way that I've seen it play out in my life. I'm just going to be honest with you. I see it play out when I make a sarcastic remark in order to remind somebody I'm better than them. I see it play out when I say something condescending about somebody else. Because here's my conviction. If I can make myself look a little bit better by making them look a little bit worse, well then maybe I can continue to run from the things that really are haunting me. I see it play out in our culture. I haven't gone this direction, obviously, but some people are really into their physical strength, right? Some things go without saying. That might not be my deal, but it might be yours. It might be the type of clothing that we wear, or the type of bank account that we have, this projection of strength. I'm stronger than I actually am. I have more power than I actually do. Do you know how many people are in debt up to their eyeballs because they're addicted to that mask? If I just buy a little bit more, I'll be okay. If I put out this projection of I got it all together, then I'll be okay. For some people, for some people, that power mask or the projection of power is about manipulating all the people and the things around them to do exactly what they want them to do. That's one of the masks that Jacob wears. One of the masks that Jacob wears. Here, here's the next. Here's the next. He instructs them first. So he's sending people out ahead of him. Okay, okay is it quiet because you're not with me or because God's working a little bit? Okay, okay. He instructed the first. When Esau, my brother, meets you, and says, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. And he goes on and he goes on. And he's, here's what he wants to do. He wants down to the very words to control what his servants say in order to project a certain image. My master, my, 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 the person whom I serve, Jacob, he's not only a big deal, but he is a guy who in the last 20-something years has really got his stuff together. Here's the mask. The mask is the persona of perfection. I've got all the flocks. I've got all the wives. I've got all the kids. I've got everything I need. Thank you very much, says Jacob. What he fails to mention, though, is that there is something that's been haunting him for 20 plus 
years that he is unwilling to stare in the face and address. Um, this, this is my mask. Not the Spider-Man one, but the mask of perfection. I don't know where it came from. I, I've done some digging there. But I have this conviction that as a pastor, I, I want to be the best pastor I can. And there's something good about that. And there's a weightiness about the calling that I gladly embrace. But can I tell you, this is my mask, the mask of perfection. Who's, anybody want to say, yeah, me too, me too. It's this conviction, all right, if I don't serve everybody perfectly, I'm going to let them down. And then somehow the world's just going to spin out of control because it all depends on me. I mean, how crazy is that? How insane is that? But it's true. Here's, the, here's what this mask says. You can see my successes, but you cannot view my failures. I'll share bits and pieces, but I won't share the things that really sting and the things that really hurt. I was astounded as I was doing some research. Maya Angelou, after writing 11 best-selling books, after being nominated for three Grammys and a Pulitzer Prize and a Tony Award said in one of her more recent books, she says this. She says, I've written 11 books, but each time I think, uh-oh, they're going to find out now. I've run a game on everybody. They're going to find me out. That's the mask. That's the mask. What are the results? Well, people who wear this mask are often fairly self-conscious. Um, they're often pretty hard on themselves. And they're often fairly hard on others. Because they don't want others to blow their cover. So the people around them have to play the game also. Um, Ernest Kurtz, in his book, The Spirituality of Imperfection, says, perfectionism is the greatest enemy of spiritual growth. Whew. Oh, man. Finally. After they go and see him, here, here's what Jacob commands his servants to tell them. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is where? He's behind us, right? He's playing the game still. That's where he is. For he thought, I may appease him. I, I, I know I stabbed him in the back, and I, I know I lied, and I know I ripped him off, but maybe, just maybe, I can give him enough stuff to make him forget how badly I betrayed him. That I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will Maybe I can be okay after I've sort of paid him off, after I've made him happy. See, these are the masks that we often wear, aren't they? The power mask, the perfection mask, and then finally, the people pleaser. I want to appease him. I want to make him happy. I want to give enough that what I've stolen will be outweighed by the gifts that I deliver. And instead of being honest, I'm going to try to make him happy. That's the core of a people pleaser. Instead of honesty, I want to try to make the people around me happy. So I'll give you what you want. I'll tell you what you want to hear, even if it's not true. I'll oversell my abilities in order to validate or earn the validation from people 
around me. But if you wear this mask, here's what you know. Attached to this mask is a huge amount of anxiety, is there not? Because the question always remains, have I done enough to make fill in the blank happy? And it, man, this mask in a marriage leads to destruction, leads to pain, leads to hurt. This mask in a job place leads to walking on eggshells and constantly wondering, am I enough? Have I done enough? It leads us to compromise our integrity, doesn't it? We tell people what they want to hear instead of what's actually true. So Paul says, if you're going to be one who is a messenger of the kingdom, the good news, we have to say no to this mask. We have to say, all right, God, I'm not just going to tell people what they want to hear. I'm going to tell them the truth because I believe that the truth is what's best for them. So he'll write to the church at Galatia, am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? That's what Jacob's doing. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Why? Because the gospel's offensive. It's not what people wanted to hear in Paul's time and in the church at Galatia and in in the surrounding areas. It's typically not what people want to hear in our time either. So sometimes it's easier to wear the mask, isn't it? Uh, Sure. Yeah, all, all, all roads lead to God, even though that makes no logical sense whatsoever, right? Sure, um, we don't believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, we'd rather just make everybody happy and appease everybody than telling them the hard truth that there's no salvation outside of Jesus the Messiah, that there's no forgiveness of sins outside of the atoning death of Jesus the Christ who on the hill of Calvary 2,000 plus years ago took your sin, your shame, your guilt, bore it on the cross in order to give you freedom. There's nothing outside of that, friends. Man, oftentimes, though, we will choose to wear the mask instead of delivering the truth in a way that's loving, please hear me on that, and genuine. But when we wear this mask, we turn life into a performance. And I'll just, I'll say it like this. The things that we want to pacify, that we're content pacifying. Okay, so Jacob wants to pacify Esau. He just wants to be okay. He and Esau, let's just sort of sweep this under the rug. Let's move on. I'll lob my gifts forward, and you can do with them what you please, but let's just move forward. The issues that haunt our soul, if we are content to pacify them, we will never make peace with them. We never will. We never will. So the mask of power the mask of perfection, and the mask of people-pleasing. Jacob, Jacob wears them. Maybe you wear one of them also. Can we all agree, though, that that is an exhausting way to live? That just feeling like we always have to lob our gifts forward and wear a mask and do the masquerade ball every second of every day in the hopes that we won't really be found out. That's an exhausting way to live. The scriptures would invite us to to be us, to be us vulnerably, to be us authentically, to be us honestly, because what I continue to hide, God cannot heal. What we continue to hide, God cannot heal. 
It's interesting to me that this tension resides in Jacob's soul, in his life. I mean, look at the way that this plays out, this tension that he's walking in. See, because in the very first part of this verse, we read it, he says, listen, my goal is that I might find favor with Esau. I want to I appease Esau. I want to be liked. I want to be okay. I want to sort of sweep this under the rug. In verses 9 through 12, he has this really beautiful prayer where Jacob pauses and goes, all right, I've got 400 men bearing down on me, but I've got a promise undergirding me. I've got 400 men coming to make war, but I have a God who's declared my worth. And in, in verses 9 through 12, he says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother. He turns back to God and says, God, you've got to move, you've got to work, you've got to do this. Verses 9 through 12, if you read them, are admirable. And you're rooting for Jacob as he prays these things. Yeah, Jacob, do that. Walk with God. Believe his promise. Call out for his deliverance. Walk in his way. And then he reverts back to that I might appease him and that he would accept me. I, I love this. Here's why. Anybody want to say they don't live in this tension every single day? I've got to make a way. I've got to find favor. God, deliver me. It's only by you that I might appease him, that I might be accepted. Right? This yo-yo of the life of faith. One moment we're down, the other we're up. I love that the scriptures are so honest that they would say to you, even the great patriarchs of the faith struggled with the exact same thing. The exact same thing. And it's in this moment, it's in this moment of tension, Jacob wrestling with what direction will I go? Who will I become? Will I walk in the way of faith or will I walk in the way of fear? He encounters God. And God touches him and God blesses him and God names him and God stirs something in him. And we're going to spend a whole message on that when we pick up our, our series in the life of Jacob in the coming weeks. But, but God touches him and he ignites something in his soul that allows him to live in the way of faith. And look at what that looks like in verse 1 of chapter 33. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, then Rachel and Joseph. He's not playing favorites, right? Why does he put Leah in front of Rachel? So she can be a shield, right? I mean, it's, I want to protect the things that are most important to me and putting them in the back, which was why he initially was in the back himself. And Joseph, last of all, verse 3, he said, he himself went on, okay, say it with me, church, before them. So drastic difference from chapter 32. Chapter 32, he's behind them. Chapter 33, he steps out from all of his masks. He steps out from all of his stuff, all of his protection, all of his insulation, all of his achievements, all of his wealth, all of his prosperity, all of the things that he said, I'm using this to shield me from actually being known by the person that has the ability to hurt me more than anybody else. I'm stepping out from behind it. 
And you see, here's the truth of the matter, friends. You and I, we can only be valued by others if we're vulnerable before others. And so he steps out, he bows down, not in a sense of worship, but it's sort of, it would be akin to saying, I surrender, I'm done, I'm not playing the game anymore. He bows down before him in a position of vulnerability, in a position of honesty, in a position of brokenness. And if fear causes me to wear facades, faith is the thing that empowers me to live in freedom. Ironically, the only thing Jacob needed to do the entire time to live the life God was calling him to live was to step out from behind the mask to step out from behind all of the stuff that he'd accumulated and that he'd built his life on in order to run from the thing that was most painful to him. The picture in the end, the picture at the beginning is Jacob surrounded by his stuff. The picture in the end is Jacob on his hands and knees and face, vulnerable, honest, open, and free. And free saying to his greatest fear, to the thing that lurked in the shadows for 20 years, do to me what you must, but I refuse to continue to run for the rest of my life. And you know what Jacob finds? Probably the same thing you found. But Esau ran, ran to him, met him, embraced him fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. <laughs> See, ironically, what Jacob's been running from for 20-plus years was not Esau. What Jacob's been running from for 20-plus years is himself. Himself. See, somehow Esau had come to a place where he was going to forgive his brother, that, that blood was going to be thicker than betrayal. But oftentimes what happens in situations like Jacob and like us where we wear the mask is we project onto other people the pain that we feel and the way that we think they'll respond because we think it's the way that we would respond. And what we often find, or at least what Jacob found, is that an anticipated attack turned into an emotional embrace. You might have found the same thing when you've been honest about something that's been going on in your life with somebody who you love deeply. You may have found the same thing when you came and said, hey, this is, this is the thing I'm struggling with, that people didn't shun you, they actually surrounded you, that they loved you genuinely in the midst of your brokenness. Jacob was never really fighting against Esau. He was fighting against himself. And when you stop trying to fix Esau and simply walk by faith, you find the freedom that God designed you to live in. And so, friends, here's been my prayer this whole week, is allow us to see what are the Esau's in our life, and then allow us to confront them with honesty, with openness, with vulnerability, saying, this is really who I am. No masks, no pretension, just vulnerable honesty, the real me. Because, hey, look up at me for just a second, okay, and then we're going to land the plane. The greatest thing you're running from and that you're hiding from has already been handled. 
because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords clothed himself in humanity. He stepped down into his creation. He took your sin, your brokenness, your shame, your separation from God. He took it on himself. He bore that pain, nailed to the hill of Calvary, and he took your sin and he gave you his righteousness. But the only way you can be clothed in his righteousness alone is if you come out of the shadows and say, this is who I am. I'm broken and yet loved. I'm in pain, yet there's provision. I'm messed up, and yet there's mercy even for me. And when you come and you bow prostrate before the throne of God in the same way that Jacob bows before Esau, what you recognize is that the thing that you're running from has already been handled by God himself. He clothes you in his righteousness. He declares his love. Friends, there is no more guilt no more shame, no more running. Come out of hiding and run to the throne of grace. There's enough there for you in the name of Jesus. So Father, that is our prayer this morning. So before we go running out of here, I just want to invite you to, to take a deep breath. And Is there a conversation that you've been running from that you need to have? A truth in your life that needs to be spoken? A pain or a regret, a failure that needs to be addressed? There's, there's no healing if there's no honesty. Jacob found it. And I just want to, Father, would you remind us today that, that there's enough grace at your throne to cover even the most wicked of offenses, the most deepest of pains, the most consuming regrets. So, Father, by your love, would you call us out this morning, out of hiding, out of running, into grace. And as we bow at your throne in faith, may we find the freedom to no longer live in fear and behind the masks, but to walk with you in the freedom that you have purchased on our behalf. I pray it over my friends this morning. Help us step out. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing our benediction together?